There really wasn't a lot talking about legacy in terms of sport participation and sport development. I mean, the Olympics and the Cricket World Cups are huge sports, but what does the sport itself get out of it as a result? And I mean, that's the work that we do every day at CQU with the Physical Activity Research Group is trying to reduce the barriers for people to get involved in physical activity. In 2016, where I ended up spending a couple of weeks in hospital and um, nobody could work out what was wrong. I wasn't satisfied and I didn't want to take no for an answer. The neuroradiologist that diagnosed me initially said that I'd have a paper written about me one day. Did, so did he suggest you write it yourself? I asked if I could be a co-author. <laughs>
talent identification. I was actually looking at talent identification in surf lifesaving. So part of it was because I loved the research and loved working with athletes, but part of that was also kind of trying to position myself for a job. Okay, so you finished your honours and that job came and it just sounds like it was kind of an explosion of all the things you were loving doing already. So tell us about what that looked like. Well, my first job out of uni was working with Surf Life Saving Australia. Um, I started as the National Development Officer and I finished up as the National Development Manager. I spent eight years there uh, and it was fantastic fun. We were based in uh, the Icebergs building at Bondi. Um, So that was an amazing spot to work, but it was also just a great job. Um, Surf Life Saving was my passion growing up and um, to be able to work in an area that you have such a passion for is really exciting. So it was great. It sounds like a joy and I can just, yeah, picture you looking out over icebergs and bringing all these people involved in this sport to be their best in this sport. But what questions were coming up within that role that you then wanted to tackle with further research? Um, I mean, my area that I was managing was development, which was partly miscellaneous, but it was also partly um, looking at how the two other areas in the organisation at the time were life-saving and competition. And they were things that people did, but development helped make those people, help those people do those things better. So we helped coaches and athletes and officials be better at competition. And we helped juniors move through the membership to either a competitive or a life-saving role or dual role. And we also helped people become better lifesavers. So we ran leadership programs and things like that as well. So um, I was, I became really interested in what now is now really commonly called sporting pathway. So looking at how you develop people and how you can give people the skills that they need to, you know, pursue their, their volunteer career as a surf lifesaver or their sporting career as a surf lifesaver. Okay. So very much about sport for life, which is such a great ideal, but you know, not something that a lot of people actually manage to do keep sport into their adult lives and 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 stick with it um how did you then end up at cqu and doing your phd um it was a bit of an accident actually one of the things we used to do at surf was run a um, coaching conference every year and someone who was based at cqu we used to bring down a lot to do some talks because he had a surf life-saving background and also was an exercise physiologist and I ran into him at a conference at the AIS and uh, said that we were looking to um, relocate out of Sydney and he just said, oh, come to Rocky, we'll give you some teaching work. So I um, became a lecturer. Um, So while I didn't actually ever teach in classrooms with children, um, I started teaching at CQU in 2004. So um, we moved up there for six months to see how we liked it and um, we're still here. Well, it's great to hear you obviously must have liked it. So the teaching and that first taste of being in the academic world, I suppose, led then to your PhD. Um, And how did you land on what was then a really unique topic? When I finished my honours, I was sort of the uni wanted me to stay on and do a PhD, but I did say I wanted to get some real world experience and um then obviously becoming back involved in academia again and teaching, which I loved, um, but I kind of did things a little bit back to front. You're kind of meant to have a PhD first. So, um, I mean, I, I feel like my teaching was really well informed from an industry and a practical um, perspective, but I just didn't have that research background as well that you need to keep going and staying long-term at a university in these sort of roles. So, did want to do a PhD but then I was sort of really wanted to find an area that I was 
interested in. Um, and I got offered a couple of PhD potential topics through 10,000 steps, but they weren't something I was really, really passionate about. And I knew that if I wanted to stick with and finish a PhD, I needed to find something that really interested me and um, was something I really wanted to look at. So I was talking to people and um, someone I worked with at Surf Lifesaving, he had just finished a stint in the Caribbean in the lead up to the Cricket World Cup over there. And um, he'd worked with the Rugby World Cup when it was in Sydney in 2003. And he his background was trade um, with Austrade. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he actually worked over in the Caribbean on legacy work, um, which was really a new, exciting, pretty unknown topic at the time. And legacy for um, people that aren't aware is um, an impact from an event that has a long and lasting effect. And the legacy can happen before, during or after an event, but it's bigger than the event itself. It's kind of like I see an event as the cake and legacy is the icing. Um, So he was working over there in the Caribbean, um, helping them establish trade and using the Cricket World Cup to establish long-term trade partnerships and strategies over there. So I started looking into legacy and there really wasn't a lot talking about legacy in terms of sport participation and sport development. I mean, the Olympics and Cricket World Cups are huge sports, but what does the sport itself get out of it as a result? So um, at that time, legacy was looking at trade, it was looking at tourism, it was looking at um, the economic impact, so what sort of money is brought into the community and obviously the facilities and stadium infrastructure. And I'd been a volunteer through Sydney during the Olympics, um, and 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 lived through and lived in Sydney during those times. So we, you know, some of those things were quite obvious. You know, the, the airport was better, the roads got better, the stadiums. You know, we got some great new stadiums and things like that. There wasn't a lot in there about what happens to the sport itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. With my particular background, it just seemed like a really good fit. But it was really funny because I went to a. Um, meeting it was a sport development working group at the Australian Sports Commission not long after the Olympics and we were just sort of all sharing our experiences of the Olympics and Australia did particularly well in trampolining um, at Sydney and so gymnastics had said yeah we've got a few more people wanting to do trampolining but gymnastics weren't prepared for taking in more people in trampolining and we kind of went oh well you know it's probably a bit late now <laughs> these are some of the sort of things we should have thought about earlier um, and you know no one was really thinking about it and it was really an afterthought and it was um and like it's easy to think about all of this stuff now in hindsight obviously but also um you know with Sydney there was such an amazing volunteer workforce and a lot of them had quite you know post event and you do have a post event lull where you go from being so dedicated to a particular sporting event and you work on it so hard and then it just stops um and people have you know people struggle after that event um it's a really difficult come down and we had all these great volunteers and we could have harvested them better we could have um, made better use of um you know that enthusiasm and that energy and tried to you know channel that that enthusiasm into other volunteering projects and things like that as well so yeah it's a tricky one um but it really it was just and in all fairness to everyone that worked at sydney um you know it just wasn't something that was expected but so much potential there like you say. So once you actually started getting into your PhD research, like yep. what were you finding in terms of the size of that potential and also what could be done to channel it? 
Yeah, it's it's a tricky one um, because we've always kind of thought it generates this enthusiasm and this intention, so it must translate to something more ongoing. But um, it was really difficult to find. So people had done longitudinal studies looking at, you know, participation in physical activity before, during and after events, and certainly things like that were done with Sydney. But what we then became aware of is that it's not just something that happens by, and I in my thesis title, I called it legacy by osmosis. So it's not a passive osmotic process. It's actually something we need to target and to, and the words leverage the big um, buzzword that they use around legacy. So it's got to be leveraged. So yes, we've got the event and yes, we want to create some good changes as a result of this event. But what we've really got to do is actually get in there and actively leverage it. So we need to make sure that sports have the capacity to take on new members um, and we need to reduce as many of those barriers for someone to participate as possible. And I mean, that's the work that we do every day at CQU with the Physical Activity Research Group is trying to reduce the barriers for people to get involved in physical activity. And now we're looking at behaviour change and habit change and what we need to do to get people to make those, you know, reduce those barriers even further. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing to do all at any, on any day of the week. Um, and, what we're trying to do now is to see how those big events can be used to try and reduce some of those barriers because we certainly get the attention and the inspiration from these events uh, and it's a matter of now translating it, leveraging it into something that's more sustainable for participation. And within your PhD, it was a very specific set of events you were looking at as well, back to your first love of surf lifesaving. What yes. were you actually, how did that project look and what did you actually find? Yeah, it was sort of a little bit serendipitous because, well, like so many things, really. <laughs> um, the Surf Lifesaving Championships had been held on the Gold Coast for a really long time and they, uh, the Western Australian Government put in a bid and got a three-year deal to host the event in Scarborough, the northern suburbs of Perth, Western Australia, for three years. Um, because of the isolation of Western Australia geographically, it gave me quite a nice sort of study where I could have a control group um, to look at the long-term effects of the event being there over the three years and to see what sort of changes are happening as a result of the event being over there. So um, I focused on WA. I love Western Australia, so it was great to be able to get over nice. there. Nice. Sort of <laughs> um, and the, the WA um, State Surf Lifesaving Organisation were really um, receptive to having someone come and help them out and work with them through the event as well. So it was good sure. because I got a, got to not only do the research, but um, they were really interested in looking at what outcomes there were and what they could do to try and capitalise on them as well. And did they make changes based on what you found or what was your best recommendation, I suppose? Um, they did make some changes. It's um, Like I said, it's a tricky beast because obviously now they don't have the event True. So some of the really, the, but the main thing that really came out of it, so without any leveraging at all, so we didn't do any leveraging, we didn't want to interfere and just uh -huh. what happened without any leveraging. Um, there weren't really any changes in membership, um, but to become a surf lifesaver requires quite a lot of, you know, there's a number of steps. So if you look at the number of, you know, steps you need to go up to become a surf lifesaving member, there's quite a few, particularly mm -hmm. if you're an active, a senior, so to be a patrolling member you've got to do a 400 meter swim in a certain amount of time and do your bronze medallion and things like that um juniors not so much but um a lot of the junior clubs are already at capacity so um again it's this capacity issue where well you know it might be it might have created all this interest but the clubs can't take on anymore yeah so, okay um 
But the biggest thing we found that came out of it was relationships, so um, social capital. The organisation built um, really strong bonding social capital. So within the Western Australian Surf Lifesaving community, they said, look, you know, we can do this event, we can run this event, we can pull this off, we can do just as well as the Eastern States. So that created a lot of really good um, internal sort of social capital within the organisation. But then the necessity to run an event like that requires lots of bridging capital, so lots of relationships and networks outside of the organisation. So they had to have a really good relationship with the local council. Um, right. Really good relationship with the state government. So they built stronger relationships with the media. So I did a media analysis and they got um, increased media attention in the lead up and a sustained amount of media attention post event. And um, talking to the, um, the media guys over there, they said that that was a result of the stronger relationships they'd built with journos and as a result of the event. That's so interesting. And you can see why that would happen but actually understanding the steps it takes to make sure it happens is uh is obviously really vital research for our sports mad country um speaking of media uh danielle you made headlines as you uh graduated with your phd because in five years you hadn't just achieved a phd but you'd also uh had three little (laughs) ones Talk us through what life looked like outside this massive piece of research. Um, yeah, I didn't have a typical candidature, that's for sure. <laughs> um, we'd always planned on having a family and and PhD study is quite, you know, it's it's pretty flexible. So I thought that um, that might have been an okay time to do that at that time. I'm a bit of a planner. So uh-huh. Uh, our daughter, our oldest daughter was born and that was okay. I was only part-time on my PhD at that stage, but then I went full-time after she was born and we thought we'll allow a little bit of time for falling pregnant with number two, um, which happened a lot sooner than we planned. And we, um, had twins (laughs) and they were preemies. So they were actually, I was planning on, we were kind of hoping that I would submit and then have a few months to kind of catch my breath and then um, baby number two. But um, they they were preemie and uh, a bit sooner than we expected. So they were actually born a month before I submitted my thesis, which was um, oh, wow, can, pretty insane. Can you remember what that month looked like? <laughs> no, no, I can't. Best not to talk um, about it perhaps. I really <laughs> thought about whether I should postpone or not. And I was really at the point of no return. And I, I don't know if I would have finished it if I didn't push through that month. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was crazy. But, I mean, it's to me, parenthood and research, is it's a team effort no matter, you know, both of those are team efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time I was finishing my thesis, I had a really great supervisor who was helping give me feedback whenever I needed. But my mum my was up helping. Um, my husband had taken some leave. So it's, you know, it's the same as anything really. It's, you know, having a good team is is essential to getting the getting through. Uh, well, I'm so glad you did and you've, you know, continued on that research pathway with the parenting juggle as well. Has that changed how you've sort of seen um, seen the importance of sport and community and, and the legacy work and ev- everything you're working on? Yeah, definitely. I've Probably, I'm still not great at it, but I'm certainly getting better at saying no. Um, <laughs> That's to, a good place to, to start. No to the kids quite a lot, but um, no to other people. Um, and 
it, it does help you. I think grounds you and helps you really realise what your priorities are. So you become quite focused on, okay, this, this is time I'm spending away from my kids. What's the best way I can possibly do? What's the best thing I can do to be making the most of this time so that I can get back and hang out with the kids? Um, so yeah, that's, that's been pretty important to me. Um, I think that's been really helpful, but, um, certainly in terms of sport, um, I became involved in an organization when the boys were, my twin boys were little called Surfing Mums. We relocated back to the North Coast of New South Wales for a couple of years when the kids were little to try Mm -hmm. and, um, get closer to our families. But so we ended up coming back to Rockhampton (laughs) after two years, but while we were down there, I was, um, involved with surfing mums of the group at Byron Bay um and so every Friday we'd meet at the beach and you'd swap with another mum and they'd watch your kids and you get to go out for a little surf and have some time to yourself oh. and some vitamin C and uh then you'd swap back with them so the kids have a great time because they're just building sandcastles and playing with friends on the beach and the mums get some social time and can grab a coffee and get to go out and have some waves so that was really um really crucial for me when I'm when the kids were little so I did have three under three and um you know if I was paying for childcare, then I certainly didn't want to be spending it exercising which sounds really bad but yeah it was good it sounds like it yeah the the sorts of uh thought processes that yeah parents need to have constantly but what a great solution yeah (laughs) I love it and and that's something we're actually wanting to do some research on now is this concept of parallel play Uh um so um I my kids are older now and um about my youngest two are about to start high school so um I've certainly become involved in sport but it's the kids sport by and large um although my daughter has done her surf rescue certificate now so she's on patrol with me which is quite exciting because I took her on patrol in her pram when oh. she was a baby um so now she's a patrolling lifesaver so we've become we've re-engaged with sport again a lot um which kind of doesn't happen in those younger years when the the baby haze is around and really the most apart from surfing mums I clocked up a lot of kilometers on it with a really good pram but um yeah so now my kids are involved in swimming and touch football and hockey and surf life-saving so we travel a lot um we um the kids are kind of starting to compete at state level so we're doing a lot of traveling um i worked out when i applied for the legacy job with the brisbane olympics that we'd spent um i think we traveled last summer sixteen thousand kilometers ah 30 nights away from home and the kids had 15 days off school. So that was, um, so not just sport participation, but regional sport participation because kids that live in the bigger areas don't have to do as much travel as we do. So that's starting to raise a lot of research questions for me as well. (laughs) From everything you're involved in, Dania, your brain is just a researcher brain. Like (laughs) everything you take on, you're coming at it with a research lens of how could things be improved? And yes, why, which is, I guess, so important for the role. But then you've also taken a research approach to just uh, to other parts of your life as well, because since, since graduating with your PhD and in your research career, it hasn't been straightforward either. So how, how are you using a research lens to kind of manage the challenges you're facing outside of research as well? Yeah, this is a tricky one. I don't often talk about it because I don't necessarily want to identify with it, but I also think that it's important to raise awareness. So I had um, quite declining health after the boys were born. I wasn't entirely sure why. I just kind of thought I was a busy mum. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
possibly an overachiever. Um, and just thought that those sort of things were, you know, just normal. I was, I was tired. I mean, I really didn't expect it to, you know, be as tiring as it was. But I really, my health just gradually declined and it got to the stage um, in 2016 where I um, ended up spending a couple of weeks in hospital, quite uh-huh. severe um, headaches. And um, nobody could work out what was wrong. And it was really difficult. I was told that it was migraines, but I was pretty convinced I didn't have migraines because I had a headache all day, every day. So quite significant ongoing pain, but also really, really uh, fatigue like I'd never known before. Not even, you know, chronic fatigue after training too hard and post-viral fatigue and um, things like that. It was just, it was really unbelievable. So I wasn't satisfied and I didn't want to take no for an answer. So I luckily was still an adjunct at the time. I hadn't worked, I wasn't working at that stage, uh, but I was still an adjunct. So I could still um, access the library resources. <laughs> and um, and a friend of mine who's a uh, GP was a really good support, but I started reading up on um, illnesses that sounded, that seemed familiar or that seemed to resonate with what I was experiencing. And um, it took quite a lot of, fighting and um at a time when I really didn't have a lot of fighting me but um my friend who's a GP and myself became convinced that I had a spinal fluid leak wow um which is a fairly rare occurrence um and I hadn't had an epidural or anything that might have um been a a risk factor for a spinal fluid leak so uh it was not a it's that it hasn't quite unusual symptoms so you feel better lying down than you do sitting up because you don't have enough spinal fluid to keep your brain afloat oh my gosh things like that so all those things fitted with me um and it was a matter of trying to find the right specialists and there are actually only two specialists in australia that deal with it so um i managed to find those specialists eventually and um i was I've worked out how to analyze the MRIs in the meantime and a whole bunch of stuff um, and and reading up a lot about spinal fluid leaks, of which there isn't a lot of literature anyway, but fortunately I was able to access the literature and my fuzzy brain, which is another symptom, Mm -hmm. uh, was kind of doing its best to try and make sense of, of what was happening and what I needed to do in terms of diagnosis and treatment. So anyway, I got an official diagnosis a confirmed diagnosis in December 2020. So that's just over four years from the initial onset of the severe severity, uh, that severe onset. But it it appears that the fatigue and things that I had prior to that were just the milder symptoms. Uh, they couldn't find the leak. So they diagnosed it by doing intracranial pressure monitoring where they put a, drill a hole in your head and put a monitor in for a couple of days. So I've had that <sighs> done three times now. Um, so that, confirmed that I did have one, but they just hadn't been able to find it. So um, it's quite invasive testing, hadn't been able to find it. And eventually, uh, or three weeks ago, I had surgery uh, where they actually take the vertebrae parts of the vertebrae out to access your spinal cord. And they found a leak. I had a a vein that's joined into my spinal cord and was leaking spinal fluid out through. Oh my gosh. Um, so that was a second laminectomy where they access the spinal cord that I've had done. Um, so it doesn't show up in any of the MRIs, um, the best quality testing you can possibly have. Uh, it's only found through surgeons actually looking and finding it. So That just sounds oh, so overwhelming and incredible. And like 
like a full-time research role to get to the bottom of it and and yet again you're juggling with your parenting and with everything else like how do you think you have coped to this point and I guess how grateful are you for your research background that helped you get here? Um, well, yeah, I think I've been incredibly lucky. I've been able to do some research and, um, look, it's, you know, it's been a long time since I studied physiology, but I've been able to find some papers and, um, from some of them from exercise, from the exercise science area that have actually helped me alleviate some system symptoms, which allowed me to go back to work last year part time. So that's been really helpful. Um, and I honestly don't know how people that don't have the ability to find access the research and try and it's it's a really tricky process so even though I've got a really good neurologist and a really good neurosurgeon um it's you've still got to advocate for yourself and you've still got to have a really good knowledge of what the questions are to ask so it's it's really tricky and I really feel for people that can't um you know get that access and and understand the journal articles and, and advocate for those things for themselves um I mean there's a lot of really great online support groups for a whole range of rare illnesses now, which is something that I've been involved with as well. Um, so that's been um, really important that you can access people that have been through the same thing. So where the week I went down to um, Macquarie Uni Hospital and had my surgery, there were three other people that I'd spoken with online previously, and we all three of us had very the same surgeries done. So it was good to be wow. able to have those people around have it have again having that network um and um yeah wherever i can and there's a couple of other people in the group that have got university backgrounds as well so they everyone's like kind of sharing research papers or trying to synthesis like take the you know the take-home key take-home points out of them for people that aren't able to read because one of the symptoms is cognitive difficulties so it, yeah that it makes it tricky sounds incredibly frustrating but also that process you've been through it sounds like it's really driving your kind of passion for inclusion and how systems can actually you know help people yeah that's another research project in <laughs> everything's a the research neuro, project the neuroradiologist that um that diagnosed me initially said that he'd, he'd i'd have a paper written about me one day did, so, did he suggest you write it yourself i, or is that I could be a co-author <laughs> Look, you know, it, it sounds like your schedule is quite busy already, but that does sound yes. like one you need to be <laughs> need to be part of. Oh, uh, it's something on my post recovery bucket list. I definitely would like to be able to um, sort of contribute back to that community and advocate because it is, like I said, it's an it's an unusual illness, um, and the the vein to dura fistula that they found in me uh, three weeks ago has I, was only actually discovered in. 2015 so wow yeah it's um there's a lot more work needed in that area like I said it's not my it's not my area but I certainly want to advocate for more research in that area yeah you said you've got a post-recovery bucket list what does that look like I can, I can imagine that it sounds like you'd be the type of person whose bucket list would always be quite large but you said you know you started off your research career with a real focus on real world impacts what's what's still on the bucket list and what impacts have you already achieved that you're most proud of well um most of it's not uni related (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of it's you know health things so um I definitely in terms of achievement so being able to um get back patrolling last season was really exciting and 
uh, I managed to compete at the North Australian Surf Life Saving Champs, so that was good mm-hmm. fun. And I persuaded my kid's swimming coach that he's going to teach me how to swim butterfly, um, which I was I was never uh, I didn't do squat as a child, so I'd really love to do that. But from a research perspective, I have still got papers in progress that I had to let go of before I got sick. So that I really and and they're on event legacy, and obviously with the Brisbane Olympics um, coming up in less than 10 years now, um, I'm, I really want to publish those and, and keep working in that legacy area. From the sounds of your determination, I reckon you could be swimming butterfly at Brisbane 2032. <laughs> oh, definitely not. <laughs> but you do have a role to play, uh, a very specific role within Brisbane uh, 2032. Do you want to just talk about uh, your appointment to that committee and uh, what what made yeah. you apply? Um, I'm still in shock a little bit about that, but I started back um, part-time at CQ just doing some research work last year and um, one of the people who I've known the whole duration of the time I've been at CQ saw the ad um, advertising for people to apply to the, the, for a legacy committee for Brisbane 2032 uh, and I wasn't going to put in because I really, I just, I'm, haven't done a lot the last uh, little while so um, I wasn't going to but they were really um, encouraging and supportive so I put an application in um, and got shortlisted which I was surprised about in itself um, because there's certainly people that are more experienced in legacy research than I am and have and have got a continued legacy sort of um, publications track record from from a research perspective sure um, so I put a, an application in and like I said, I did an interview and I didn't think I did particularly well at the interview. Um, like I said, this cognitive stuff, um, makes it yeah. difficult to talk about <laughs> and things like that. And I honestly, I hadn't done a job interview in so long. So, um, but yeah, I somehow convinced them, <laughs> um, <laughs> to, um, be selected so I was really excited um, we had our first meeting a couple of weeks ago and it's an amazing group of people um, really diverse group of people and and not really um, focused on the sport at all so I'm the only person with any sort of a sporting you know specific right. sporting background on the committee well congratulations firstly it sounds like an amazing opportunity and so much uh, impact ahead finally Danielle it sounds like, you know, it's really been passion for the impact and for sport itself that's kept you going through your career. For people who are starting out on their research journey, have you got any advice and especially advice for when the going gets tough as it has for you? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, you've really got to find something that you're passionate in and that you're really curious about, I think, for a start. Um, that's the difficult part when you start a PhD um, is um, and some people go in knowing already what they're going to do. So if, they, if they've started like that, then they've already got a head start. But if you're looking for something, it's really got to be something that um, you're passionate about, but also something that, you know, you've got to be a little bit strategic and find something that um, that will get you a job at the end as well. Um, <laughs> and, if it, and if it's in areas that you like then, and, or are interested in, then that's, that's really important, I think. Um, and the other thing I really, it's crazy because it's such a big, big project to undertake, but I probably learned more about, um, I've always been a bit of a productivity junkie, uh-huh. um, but 
probably learnt more about that during my PhD than at any other time or any of the other books I've read or anything like that. But yeah, just managing to break things up into small small bites. So I love the Pomodoro. So twenty five minutes. Um, turn your phone off, put it out of reach, turn the internet off and just get in and write and write before you're ready. That's Dr. Daniel Hodgetts with some great advice on just diving into what you're passionate about, no matter what life throws at you. She's a research fellow with the Physical Activity Research Group at Seek University, and she's one of 12 Queenslanders on the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games Legacy Committee. And as you heard, she's also a mum and a surf lifesaver and a passionate advocate for sport that includes and empowers everyone. You can find Danya on Twitter. Her handle is at Danya, that's D-A-N-Y-A. If you want your passion to change lives, a research higher degree can help. Visit cqu.edu.au slash rhd to explore degree options, pathways, potential supervisors, or just to register for a free information webinar. There's more details in the show notes, and that includes a link to current scholarships for RHD students too. Next up, Impact Goes Live. Straight out of Rockhampton, we hear from three award-winning CQ University researchers making an impact in some really diverse fields. So the contact between the wheel and the rail are actually the size of your, like your thumbnails. Just imagine like 160 tons of load and just applied on those small areas. So my research is mainly uh, trying to look at um, the whole picture of the railway system mm-hmm. influencing on that small area and then trying to uh, save more maintenance uh, budget for the railway companies. Yeah, so I had absolutely no interest mm. in research. Um, <laughs> I was quite happy as a secondary teacher uh, and I actually fell pregnant with my first child and it was that experience um, and as a part of that experience I received some really contradictory advice from health professionals with regards to my exercise behaviours and I was really unsure as to what I should do. If I was unsure with an exercise science background then there's a lot of women out there that are also really unsure. I didn't know much about Rockhampton, also um, this area before, but I read papers about (laughs) the research here, so I contacted the supervisors here, then they granted me scholarship and I came to here and never left. (laughs) Make sure you're following CQ University Podcasts wherever you listen to get every episode as it's released. And check out CQ University across social media for more inspiring stories and life-changing research. Thank you for joining us on Impact Research Podcast from CQ University, where research makes real impact.